preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, this wasn't planned to, as a new sermon for this week, it was what I was uh, working on anyway, but it's just uh, interesting of, uh, how the events in the, the world uh, kind of aligned with uh, what I was planning to speak on today. Uh, this week, thousands of uh, rockets lit up the sky, uh, many of them exploded on the ground, and the attention of the world has once again been drawn to this small strip of land that connects the east and the west called Israel. Uh, the conflict in the Middle East made its way onto the front pages across the globe. Uh, even though it's only a small plot of land, modern, modern day Israel is about 8,500 square miles. That's, that's a small country. It's a, a small country. It's smaller than the state of, of Maryland. It's just about the size of New Hampshire. If you know your, the size of your, your states, it's even smaller than the state of New Hampshire, an entire country. But it's a country that continues to demand the attention of the entire world. Whether you want to pay attention to it or not, you're forced to pay attention to the small country of Israel. And not only does the land of Israel demand our attention, the people of Israel demands our attention. Uh, right here in Baltimore, uh, we have one of the nation's largest populations of Jewish people. According to one database, uh, about 4% of uh, Maryland is Jewish, but Baltimore is almost double that with seven and a half uh, Jewish uh, people living here in Baltimore. And that should grab our attention as well. Uh, MacArthur once made this observation. Have you ever met a Hivite, a Jebusite, an Amorite, a Hittite, or any otherite? <laughs> They got amalgamated, blended a millennia ago, but you've met plenty of Israelites. If God isn't going to do something for the Israelites in the future, then how do you explain what they're doing in the world? MacArthur calls the the Jewish people a miracle of preservation. It's incredible. And for all of the, the wars and dispersions and attacks and attempted genocides on the Jewish people, they continue to survive. Now, from the Hitlers of the world to the current day leaders of Hamas, There are people who wish to see Israel and its people wiped off the map, but the Jewish people are still here. It's miraculous. The land of Israel demands attention. The people of Israel demand attention, and the history of Israel demands attention. There's a rich biblical history that spans from the calling of Abraham somewhere around 2100 B.C. to the calling of the disciples during the ministry of Jesus around 30 A.D., Uh, The the people of Israel occupy thousands of years of biblical history. When Jesus began his ministry, he instructed his disciples to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
And we were reminded uh, of that just last week when we briefly looked at the, the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15 when Jesus told her that he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even though she was a believer, even though Jesus recognized her as a believer, having great faith, he said that you're still outside of the house. You're still outside of the house of Israel. Even after the church is born, the disciples are sent to preach the gospel to all nations. And we know that the the gospel went out to all the nations. But there's still an emphasis on the Jewish nation, even in the Great Commission. The gospel starts at the center of Jewish life in the city of Jerusalem. That's significant. The disciples were men of Galilee. Actually, Galilee was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember that? Galilee of the Gentiles. They met on a mountain in Galilee for the Great Commission. But when Jesus told them to wait, where did he tell them to wait? Wait at Jerusalem. Don't wait here in Galilee. Wait in Jerusalem. And the gospel is going, going to go out, starting at Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Great Commission, even though it was given in Galilee, it started in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the earth. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone, to everyone who believes. But he says what? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it was Paul's custom as he entered a city for the first time that he would seek to reason with the Jewish people first. That wasn't by accident. Acts chapter 17 and verse 2, it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There are so many scriptures that speak about the prominent place that Israel occupied. Psalm 132 verse 13 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Jerusalem was called Zion because of a prominent mountain on the edge of the city called Zion. So Jerusalem as a whole was called Zion. Psalm 48 verse 2 says, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Psalm 68, verse 16, why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6 says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The city of Jerusalem was the center of of worship for the true God. It's where the the tribes would go to give thanks to the Lord. It's where the thrones of the house of David were set for judgment. And David gives this exhortation in Psalm 122 and verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. And it's clear from scripture that the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and the history of Israel have a significant role, have had a significant role in the past, But the question is, what role, if any, do they have in the future? Because there are some who would argue that national Israel and the promised land does not maintain a significant role, if any, in the future. An exact quote from one of the books that I've been reading that presents an amillennial alternative says this, the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope, as portrayed in the Old Testament documents, is found in the person and work of Christ, so far so good, And the believing remnant 
which he defines not as Israel, but as the church rather than national Israel. The fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope is not with the believing remnant of Israel, but with the believing remnant that's the church is what the book says. And the reason why we're looking to address the relationship between the church and Israel and thinking about does Israel have a future is because we've been studying through the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we've reached verses 9 through 10 in chapter 2. And uh, texts like 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, as well as texts like Galatians 6, 16 and Romans 2, 28 and 29 have been used to support the idea that national Israel finds its fulfillment in the church and that there is no future for national and ethnic Israel. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 lets us know the last time we were here together, Peter uses the, the very same language that God used to describe Israel to describe the church. If you want to take a look at, at it with me in verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. And the conclusion that some people reach is that that must mean that the church is now to be identified with Israel or that the church is the continuation of Israel, or that the church is spiritual Israel, or some would even use the term replacement, a replacement for Israel. One author declares that the New Testament teaches that national Israel has been permanently replaced by the church and the new covenant. Another author insists that Israel would no longer be the people of God and would be replaced by a people that would accept the Messiah and his message of the kingdom. Another author writes, the fact of the matter is that God is through with them as a unified national group. And another popular systematic theology argues that Jesus teaches replacement theology. Whatever term is is used for this idea that the promises and privileges and priorities given to national Israel are now possessed by the church, it it kind of all communicates the same idea. And I want to examine in our text today and some related texts to see if we can answer the question, what is the relationship between Israel and the church, and is there a future for Israel? And this will be more of an address than an exposition, but we'll make sure we apply what we learn because this isn't just information. Uh, If you haven't received one of the sheets as you came into church today, you can uh, uh, ask one of the ushers and uh, they might be able to to grab you one, Uh, but we're going to go ahead and uh, and jump in. So you don't have to write furious notes. Most of what I'm going to say, at least the scriptures I'll be using, will be on there. So um, you can take a look at that, and I also want to um, publicly give thanks to uh, Dr. Michael Vlack, who um, uh, shared with me his uh, PowerPoint and uh, some suggestions along the way as well, so uh, he told me I could make use of him here. So, First Peter chapter 2, let's go ahead and read verses 9 to 10 together. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity that we have to open up your word. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to make these things clear, that you'd grant us understanding. And Father, that you'd grant us understanding of, of what the scripture has to say, Lord, that we would uh, make sure that we arrive at a proper interpretation of what these things mean and 
Uh, Father, it's just my desire to uh, make sure I'm faithful uh, with your word and uh, uh, that I'm representing it accurately, Lord, and, and faithfully and uh, speaking with conviction uh, regarding the things that I've understood through your word. So, Father, I pray that you'd help me uh, today, that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What we find in First uh, Peter chapter 2, and verses 9 to 10, is we find these prestigious titles that are given to the church. We looked at this last time we were in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 10. There's these prestigious titles. You know, the, the church is called the chosen race. And Isaiah 43 and verse 20 calls Israel the chosen race, the chosen people. In Isaiah 44 and verse 1, God says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. The church is also called a, a royal priesthood, which was also a designation given to Israel a holy nation as well. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6 uh, speaks about Israel and says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And the church is also called a people for God's own possession. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 speaks about Israel in the same way. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the question that that raises is, does that mean that national Israel, ethnic Israel, has permanently been set aside? Has national Israel permanently been set aside because the church is now given these titles? And my simple response would be that there is nothing at all in this text that would give us any indication that national Israel has been permanently set aside. It's not found here. The point of this text is to make a positive declaration about the church, not a negative declaration about national Israel. But since we're asking the question, let's take a a quick tour through Scripture to see what the Bible has to say about national Israel and if there's a future for national Israel. And we'll start the journey back in Genesis chapter 12. Why don't you turn there with me? Genesis chapter 12. Going to take a look at the, the beginning, back at the, back at the top. The beginning of the nation of, of Israel starts with the father of the nation, Father Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12. And this is really a, a central text for us to understand if we're going to understand the biblical role of, of Israel. And what we find is that the Old Testament explicitly teaches the calling and election of national Israel. Look at Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. So says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is where national Israel begins. It gets its beginning right here. Prior to the choosing of, of Abraham, we know that God elected individuals like Abel and Enoch and Noah, but this is the first time that we hear of a nation being formed, a nation being discussed through a, through a man, through an individual, that you're going to be the father of this great nation. And it's clear that this nation was to come through Abraham's physical seed. If you remember over in Genesis chapter 15, where the, the Lord reiterated this covenant with Abraham, It says in Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 1, that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, 
and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him aside and said, now look toward the heavens. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. If the Lord wanted to communicate any clearer that it's going to be a physical seed that you're going to have, that those are the descendants, that's the promise that I'm giving to you, how, how else could he make it more clear? He says, it's not going to be Eliezer. It doesn't matter if he's in your house. It doesn't matter if he follows your faith. It's one through your own body will be your heir, a physical descendant, not just a spiritual descendant. This was a promise that would be fulfilled with Abraham's physical seed. And there are several aspects to this promise given to Abraham that are important to point out. Abraham was promised a land, a nation, a name, and a blessing. And not only would he receive a blessing, but he would be a blessing. In him, in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the families of the earth in this context are the families that are outside of his own family. You understand that? So through his family, all the other families would receive the blessing. And those other families would later be known as the Gentiles. So through the Jewish descendants, all the other families, the Gentiles, would be blessed, and his family would be the beginning of that blessing that would spread throughout the earth. And there are several ways that Israel would be a blessing. Now, first, the scriptures were given through the Jewish people. Romans chapter 3 and verse 2 says, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, this, this, this Bible that we read today, you, you can thank the Jewish people for it, okay? <laughs> Praise God that we have this gift from the Jewish people, right? From them, they were entrusted the oracles of God. The Jewish nation was also chosen to be the vehicle through which the revelation would come to us. Second, the, the, the Jewish nation would be the means the Lord used to bring the Messiah to us. The Son of God came to us through the Jewish nation. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5 says, speaking about the Jewish people, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever, amen. Christ came according to the flesh through the Jewish nation. The physical birth of Jesus Christ came through the Jewish people. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and we are those who have benefited from that promise that was given to the Jewish nation. It was Jesus Christ through whom all other nations would be blessed. That was the primary blessing. Also, we benefit from the promises that were given to Israel. And we'll learn more about that in a moment. But uh, just to, to put a verse with this, uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 4 says, To whom belong the promises? And uh, those of us who are in Jesus Christ are also those who benefit from those promises. According to Exodus 19 and verse 6, Israel had the role of being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to, to be a, a, a blessing to the other people around them. As we look through history, we understand that Israel failed in their responsibility. They experienced God's judgment just as God predicted that they would. God warned them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 17 to 18, if your heart turns away, you will not obey. 
but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. But judgment would not be the final word on Israel, even after Israel failed, okay? God also promised a restoration for Israel. And that's our second point. The Old Testament explicitly teaches the restoration of the nation Israel. And there's, there's many texts, there's many places that we could go to speak about the, the restoration. But what you often find is that the restoration, the promise of restoration, follows right on the heels of disobedience, judgment. And then God speaks about restoration right after they failed, fallen flat on their face, and God says, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to restore you. There's going to be a future for you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting at verse 1. It says, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and called them to mind and all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, so here's the punishment, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God, and with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. Over in the the book of of Jeremiah, there's a, a prophecy about destruction, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile into Babylon because of Israel's disobedience. Over in chapter 31, he promised, prophesies a, a restoration of, of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 10, it says, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain, the new wine, and oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. Again, there's this promise of restoration. And this covenant that God makes with Israel is not a covenant that they can break. Look in uh, verse 31, if you're in Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at verse 31. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And then listen to how many times God says that that he will do this. Look Look at this, verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God God says, I'm going to do this. This this, this has nothing to do with you, okay? I'm making a promise that this is something that will be fulfilled. Who's responsible for it? I am. I will do this. I shall do that. And this is not dependent on them. It's dependent on God. And we understand that Jesus... uh, talked to disciples and talked about the the new covenant in his blood that we as the church participate in, that we benefit from, but that doesn't mean that this promise will no longer be fulfilled with national Israel. 
Just because somebody else benefits from a promise doesn't mean that the original recipient of the promise will not benefit from it. We can have both ends. It's not an either or, okay? It's not dependent on them. This is dependent on God. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 36 and 37, Isaiah 49, 3 to 6. And since we're here in Jeremiah 31, there's another point that Jeremiah makes, and it's about the preservation of Israel. Look at uh, Jeremiah 31, look at verse 35. Jeremiah 31, look at verse 35. It says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Uh, did the sun come up today? Anybody, anybody check that out? I'm not sure. You, know, you think the waves are still roaring? Anybody been to the, to the ocean? You think the waves are still roaring? You think the moon is going to be out? Anybody uh, like miss the moon? It's like, like all these things, the Lord says, if this fixed order departs from me, that's when I'll stop being faithful to Israel. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt. The Lord says, if, if you can measure the heavens, go ahead, go ahead and try. I don't, I don't know how long we've been trying, right? You know, to, to measure the furthest stars and planets, the galaxies. It's like it keeps on expanding, right? It's like the more they search, the more that there is that they have to search. You, you can't get to the end of it. And God says, well, when you can do that, then I'll discard Israel. That, that's when that'll happen. The city will be rebuilt. And then at the end of verse 40, he says, it will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Jeremiah understood that the, the nation would not always dwell in the land of Israel. It's not contingent upon whether or not the nation is actually in the land because here Jeremiah is prophesying that you're going to be exiled into Babylon. But it doesn't make this promise void just because you're displaced from the land, just because you're exiled off the land. This promise will still happen. Just as it's been predicted, it will surely occur. And Israel cannot be wiped out. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. The the Lord himself has declared that it will not happen. It's a fixed order. The Egyptians tried to control the numbers of the Israelites, but they couldn't stamp them out. Israel was resilient. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 12 says, The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Fight against Israel and see what happens. The Amalekites tried to wipe out the Israelites, they, they traveled as they, the Israelites were traveling across the, the wilderness. The Amalekites tried to chase them down and pluck them off. Exodus 17 verse 13 says, So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. You know, try it again and see what happens. Haman plotted the destruction of the Jewish people under King Ahasuerus, the Persian Empire. But God protected Israel yet again through Esther and Mordecai. Esther chapter 9 and verse 5 says, Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And we saw that same kind of preservation of the Jewish people during the Holocaust, and even in modern-day Middle East, the crisis that we see there now, the people of Israel will not be wiped out because God won't allow it, because God is faithful to his promise. 
And the existence of the Jewish people is one of the amazing proofs of the truthfulness of the scriptures. One, one Jewish uh, political figure, when he was asked, you know, how does Israel survive? He gave God the credit. And he says, uh, you know, when, when he was asked, how does Israel survive? He says, uh, he did what he does and he is who he was. <laughs> God did what he does and he is who he was. Even if the state of Israel did not exist, it would not eliminate the nation of Israel. Number four, the New Testament reaffirms the Old Testament expectation of the salvation and restoration of Israel. If there was going to be some kind of dramatic shift in the direction of thousands of years of revelation, you know, ever since it was given to Abraham that you'll be a nation, if there was going to be some kind of dramatic shift, you'd expect Jesus to be the one who would announce it, right? You'd have expected Jesus and the apostles to say, hey guys, I'm sorry, we're all done, you know, you know, party's over, you know, might as well go home. Israel's no longer, you know, this, it's it. But what you find is that Jesus and the apostles only affirmed what the Old Testament predicted about the restoration of Israel. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus spoke about the regeneration or the, the restoration of Israel. And he confirmed that his apostles would judge the 12 tribes on the 12 thrones. How are you going to judge 12 tribes on 12 thrones if they no longer exist? How's that supposed to happen if Israel is done away with? Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 23, verse 39, Jesus was rejected by the national leaders of Israel. And he speaks to them and says, you're not going to see me anymore. He doesn't say, you won't see me forever, though. He says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's coming a time when national Israel and its leadership will look to the sky and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will return to the Lord. The national rejection of Israel will one day turn into a national reception of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. One day, there's going to come a time when Israel's going to wake up. National and ethnic Israel is going to wake up. And they're going to say, what have we done? They're going to look upon him and they're going to take responsibility we are the ones who perished him. Yeah, it happened at the hands of the, the Romans, but who's the one who delivered him over to death? It was us. We are the ones who perished him. And they will mourn like you mourn over an only child, just grieving, heaving over their rejection of Jesus Christ. There's coming a time when Israel's going to wake up and trust in the Lord. They will weep bitterly over him, but they'll finally look to him. They'll finally acknowledge their sin. They'll finally come to their senses. Over in Acts chapter 1, we're told about one class that nobody would have wanted to miss. 40 days with Jesus. Can you imagine that? 40 days with Jesus as the, the guest lecturer, the resident scholar. How many, how many would have signed up for that class? You know, maybe more than will come tonight, but uh, anyway. The title of this class was Things Concerning the kingdom of God. That's the title of this class. 
Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 years and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's why I call it that. Speaking on the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's the title of Jesus' lecture. And after this once-in-a-lifetime class, the disciples gather around the professor to ask one final question. Oh, professor, this has been wonderful. I've enjoyed this so much. We've just got one more question, professor. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus didn't say, you blockheads, what what have I been doing for 40 days? Don't you guys know by now there is no restoration? 40 days I've been saying this. Israel's done with. That's not what they say. That's not what he says. He says, it's not for you to know the time. He didn't say, oh, you're wrong about the restoration of Israel. That's not happening. He spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom, and what is he talking about? The restoration of Israel. That's why they're asking about it. Is it at this time that it's going to happen? He says, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's going to happen. The only question is when. When will it happen? And that's what Peter was hoping for as he preached the good news in Acts chapter 3. Listen to what Peter says. Listen to how he, how he shared the good news. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore, repent and return, number one, so that your sins may be wiped away, number two, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I am, I am hoping for, expecting times of refreshing to come. The restoration of Israel is what I'm hoping for. And if you would repent and turn to the Lord, we would see the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things is connected to the repentance of Israel. That's why in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says they will look upon him, turn to the Lord, right? They'll mourn over him as for an only son, and then Christ restores all things. It's it's connected. There's this expectation of the salvation and restoration of Israel. Number five, the New Testament says that the Old Testament promises and covenants are still the possessions of Israel. There are these covenants and promises that were given to Israel that are still to be fulfilled with Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says something that really stops me in my tracks every time I come across it. Romans chapter 9. Why don't you, if you're not there, why don't you flip there? Romans chapter 9. This, this is one of those. I don't, I don't care how many times I read this. Like, it's always convicting. Because you understand what Paul is saying when he says these words. Listen to Romans chapter 9. Starting at verse 1, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Stop right there. What, what, what he's saying is like, you know, guys, I'm going to preface this. You know, like, like you ever talk to somebody and, and uh, before you even say something, it's like, I, you know, I know you're not going to believe this, but believe me when I'm telling you, okay? Just, just trust me on this one. Trust me. I'm telling you the truth. This is what, what Paul is doing. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. You know, he's, he's front-loading it with, like, please believe me when I say this. I'm telling you the truth. Verse 2, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do you know what Paul is saying? Paul, Paul is saying, if it were possible for me to be separated from Christ so that my Jewish brethren could be united with Christ, I would take the penalty. What, what does it look like to be separated from Christ? It's an eternity in hell. Paul says, if, if I could take the eternity in hell so that my brothers could go to heaven, I'd make that exchange. It's like, Lord, <laughs> like we, we are so unworthy. You know, we, we approach a text like this, like when, when, when have you ever thought about that for somebody else? Like, Lord, if I could go to hell so they could go to heaven. This is, this is what Paul is saying. I have such a deep grief and a burden. And what we find in Paul is really the, the kind of attitude that was in Christ Jesus himself, right? Who was willing to lay down his life for the sake of his brethren. This is what Paul was doing. I'm, I'm willing to lay my life down. I'm willing to lay my eternity down if it means the salvation of Israel. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs. It doesn't say it like it used to. To whom belongs. The adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh who is over all, God bless forever, amen. He says this is, this is what belongs to, to the Israelites. Now they're not benefiting from it, but this is what was given to them. This is what was offered to them. And then Paul goes on to say, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And what is he saying there? He's saying that, that not every Israelite is going to make it into the kingdom. I understand that. I understand that there's a remnant that's going to make it in. Not everybody is going to make it in. But there will come a time when there will be a massive revival and everybody who exists during that time will know the Lord. But here you have Paul saying that I, I wish I could, be, I could be cursed so my people could be blessed. But he says this is still the possession of Israel. They, they've been given these things, these promises, these covenants. It was still through Abraham's physical seed that the promise was to be fulfilled, and that's what he recognizes here. It's still those who are descended, descended from Israel that he's still looking for the fulfillment of the promise, and those who have descended. Do you understand that? Make the connection there. hope you're not losing that. It's those who are descended that he's looking for the fulfillment in them, not just, oh, you know, it's a spiritual Israelite, you know, because he's believed in the same Christ that I have. No, he's looking for a connection with the descendants. I'm looking for that promise, that line, somebody that's connected back to Abraham physically because it was through his seed, right? There, there's something about the physical seed that was promised here. God still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. And you knew we had to get here sometime, but why don't you turn over to Romans chapter 11. And I wish we had the time to cover this entire passage. And one day soon, soon and very soon, Lord willing, we will cover the book of Romans. That is my plan sometime before you put me in a box somewhere that I will be able to study and teach through the book of Romans. So uh, it's, it's on the calendar. I'm not sure where on the calendar, but it is on the calendar, all right? But you have in Romans, Paul is uh, letting us know that a partial blindness and hardening has happened to national and ethnic Israel. But that doesn't mean that God is done with them. Look at uh, Romans chapter 11. You have in uh, starting at verse 11, Look at what Paul says here. Says here. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, God is not completely done with Israel, is he? May it never be. 
But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. You know, it's actually going to, to work towards their salvation. You know, to make them jealous so that they want to get in on what the Gentiles are getting in on. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, you know, we've received the benefit, right? And their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? What fulfillment is Paul talking about when Israel receives the promise? When, when they receive, if this is what happens when they don't receive it, can you imagine what's going to happen when they do? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, you know, in other words, I, I work even harder to see Gentiles come to know the Lord because I know it's going to provoke some of these Israelites to get in on it. You know, like, what, what are these Gentiles doing with our scriptures? You know, what are they doing seeming like they're really enjoying that over there? You know, they're, they're having a good time. I want in on that. So Paul is saying, I'm going to make more Gentiles come to know the Lord. I'm going to preach the gospel even harder to make Israel jealous. And the point is, is that, again, this, this, this reconciliation of the of, uh, of, of, of these Gentiles to, to, to the Lord incites Israel to come to know the Lord. If might, might move them to jealousy. Verse 15, he says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And the point is, is that if Israel's rejection results in something glorious, which is the salvation of the Gentiles, there's something that's going to happen that's even more glorious when Israel receives the Lord as well. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary says this, most scholars rightly understand the phrase life from the dead to refer to the physical resurrection of the dead. That is, the salvation of all Israel, and uh, understand that, uh, the salvation of all Israel to be what happens after the tribulation, to be the climax of this age that will be followed by the resurrection. In other words, okay? So right now we have this spiritual salvation, right? You know, we've come to know the Lord, we've been united to Christ, we have the spiritual blessings. But it's when Israel comes to know the Lord as well that it's all culminated, that, that it's brought down to earth, that the kingdom is now inaugurated right here on earth as Jesus Christ comes down in the physical blessings combined with the, the spiritual blessings. And some people, you know, kind of make this dichotomy as if, uh, you know, spirit is good and flesh is bad. Do you know that, that after we die, if we die before the Lord returns, uh, that we're still waiting for something else. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about it. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about it as well. We're waiting for what? A body, <laughs> right? You know, so we, we die, we're at home with the Lord. You know, so I'm up, up there complaining. It's like, Lord, when am I going to get that body? You, know, you promised me a body. When's that going to happen, right? I'm not up there complaining. I'm happy to be with the Lord, right, in the presence of the Lord. But I know there's still something else that's to come. And that comes when Israel receives their Messiah, and the Lord comes back, okay? This, this, it, it's all connected. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? This is when the resurrection takes place. MacArthur adds this regarding Israel. He was speaking of its rebirth, the rebirth of the whole world and the glorified millennial kingdom of God. And that's exactly, again, what Peter was talking about. Would you come to the Lord, Israel, so that times of refreshing can come? So, so that the blessings on the world can come? In Acts chapter 3 again, he speaks about Jesus Christ, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Repent, so that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Israel, 
whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. He's bringing in the whole Old Testament record that the time when Israel receives their Messiah, the restoration of all things happens at the same time. Back in Romans 11 again, Paul continues to say in verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The cultivated tree is national and ethnic Israel. And there's a thick trunk of national ethnic Israel that God chose to save. And that's what makes up this tree. And it includes the remnants from other nations, but the bulk of that tree is made up of national ethnic Israel. Verse 19 says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, quite right, they were broken off for, your, for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. In other words, the, the Gentiles have been made partakers of the tree that was not originally theirs, and the Gentiles can be broken off too. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, listen to this, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the time limit. So after this time period is ended, all Israel will be saved. It's until, they've been cut off until. When all the Gentiles are in, that's when Israel comes in. The last Gentile that's, that's saved, Israel comes back in. It's like the time period of the Gentiles is over. From the standpoint of the gospel, verse 28 says, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Israel was still chosen by God, God's choice. Number six, God is faithful to Israel because of his promises to the patriarchs of Israel. In uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 28, we've already read it. They're God's choice, beloved, for the sake of the fathers. So many times in the, in the Bible, uh, the Bible refers to the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and these promises were not revoked. And this is where point seven comes in to our outline. Israel's election calling is irrevocable. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as ye once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Israel will be shown mercy. That's point number seven. You didn't think we'd get there, did you? Just to remind you of, of where, where we were, back in First uh, Peter chapter 2, we learned about the church, how the church has these uh, pres- this prestigious titles, you know, prestigious designation. We share these titles that were originally given to Israel. Uh, second part of uh, verse 9 speaks about the prestigious occupation that we proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the last 
verse, which we didn't get to last time, was uh, verse 10 in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, where it talks about this prestigious transformation, that we've been transformed as well. Verse 10, it says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And some of you might be looking at the back of your sheets. Um, we're not going to get to that today, okay? <laughs> we're not going to get to that. That's, that's for those of you who, like, after, you know, all that I said already, you're still not convinced, you can turn to the back and, uh, and work on that, all right? And uh, if you have any questions, come and talk to me, because I'd love to talk about it, all right? But uh, we're going we're gonna to keep going here, all right? First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 10 speaks about this prestigious transformation. Listen to this. Chapter 2 and verse 10. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're unaware of the the context of uh, this quotation, you can assume that Peter is talking about, you know, uh, using a, a quotation that was talking about originally the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles were not the people of God, but now they've become, they hadn't received mercy, but now they do receive mercy. You might assume that that's, uh, quotation about the Gentiles, similar to Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about the Gentiles being far off and now being brought near. But that's not the original context of this quotation. I just want to show you this, and uh, this will just be the, the final point here, because I think that this, this might help you out if, if you still heard everything else and you're still unconvinced. Uh, I think this might, might, might be helpful for you. Back in the book of Hosea, why don't you flip back to the book of Hosea? Hosea is the, the first of the, the minor prophets, not called uh, minor because of uh, the importance, but minor because of the size. So you'll find the book of Hosea right after the book of Daniel. Hosea was a, a prophecy written to the northern kingdom of Israel. It was written during the final hours of northern Israel. One, one author said that we see in the prophecy of Hosea the last few swirls before Israel goes down, goes down the drain. And just like the prophet Jeremiah was called to speak to the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea was called to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. Just before its destruction in 722 B.C. at the hands of the Assyrians. And during the time that Hosea prophesied, Israel seemed to be doing well on the surface. They were enjoying a lot of prosperity, expansion, uh, Jeroboam. Uh, of Joash, son of Joash, mentioned in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1, expanded the territory of Israel, was flexing their strength. But just beneath the surface of all this prosperity, there was corruption, spiritual decay throughout the land, and Israel was in spiritual darkness. Just beneath the surface, Israel oppressed the poor. They sought alliances with the the strong instead of turning to the Lord. They removed themselves from the, the worship of the true God, disregarded their rich spiritual heritage. They're like an unfaithful spouse, and the book of Hosea is like a a one-sided love story where faithfulness and loyalty was rewarded by treachery and brazen unfaithfulness, adultery. And God illustrates the adultery of faithless Israel in a painfully real and graphic way through the prophet Hosea. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll just walk through this really quick and uh, take into the context of where this quotation is found, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Barry during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, 
when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. And there's a, a debate over this, you know, what's, what's meant by, you know, taking a, a wife of harlotry because the question is, would the Lord give that kind of command to a prophet? You know, take, take a prostitute as your wife? Maybe Hosea was meant to picture what it would be like if I was married to a harlot. Or maybe he married a faithful woman and then she became a harlot. That's the debate that goes on. But if you take the straightforward reading of the text, he's told to take a woman from the streets. Or what may have likely been the case, a woman who was involved in some sort of pagan temple service, you know, where they often practice prostitution in their worship. And she became a public illustration of Israel's sinful promiscuity and a lack of restraint, religious adultery. Verse 3 says, So he went in, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. The, the name Jezreel means a sowing or a, a scattering. It was a place where Ahab and Jezebel had an innocent man put to death. It was also the place where Jehu began his bloodshed against Ahab, the house of Ahab. But it seems that uh, uh, he took it too far, that Jehu took it too far. So the Lord says, I'm going to repay for what the bloodshed that occurred here. But God is promising to bring Israel to this screeching halt here. You have uh, over in uh, chapter, chapter 1 again. It says, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. I'm going to bring Israel to a stop. Look at verse 6. It says, then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle horses, or horsemen. The kind of judgment that God was about to subject Israel to would be merciless. The, the word low means no, and ruhama means compassion or mercy. He says, I will have no mercy. Call, call, call this child no mercy. In this context, the, the mercy is associated with a deliverance from battle, from the war, sword, battle, horses, horsemen. And uh, God says, I'm not going to have any mercy when the war starts. I'll not deliver them. Over in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, speaks about uh, the conditions of Israel when they were placed in exile. I'll just read it real quick. In uh, verse 6, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria, settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan, in the cities of Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns. From watchtower to fortified city, they set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill under every green tree. There they burned incense in all the high places as the nations did which the Lord had carried away to exile before them, and they did evil things, provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So Israel was just given away to this wanton idolatry. 
And God says, I'm, I'm not turning back from the judgment that's going to come on Israel. There's no turning back. There's no mercy. Proverbs 29, verse 1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. And God says, that's what's going to happen. You've been warned, you've been warned, you've been warned, and that's it. And finally, they were rejected as God's people. Look at verse 8. It says, When she had weaned Luruhama, no compassion, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. It's like the, the final nail in the coffin. Where, where do you go when God rejects you? There's no hope. You know, it's our confidence in God that gives us hope, right? They're, they're saying, you, you, don't, you don't have God anymore. You're not my people. You know, we, we sing it in the song, you know, How Firm a Foundation. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I will still give thee aid. And God is saying, that's, that's not for you. I'm, I'm not your God. You're not my people. Where do you go when God says no? You can't imagine a more hopeless situation. And for this generation of northern Israel, it was true that their hope as a nation was gone. They could not call on the Lord as the God of their nation anymore. But that didn't mean that God wasn't still saving individuals, and it also didn't mean that the nation would be lost forever. Because look at the very next verse. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, right on the hills of judgment, you're not my people, I'm not your God, I will have no mercy on you. Right on the heels of that, verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Flip over to Hosea chapter 11, look at verse, verse 8. Hosea chapter 11, look at verse 8. Look, look at what the Lord says. This is so good. How, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I'm God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One, who is what? Faithful. God is faithful. And the book of Hosea is about the faithfulness of God, even in the face of unfaithfulness. And God illustrates his faithfulness and his steadfast love for Israel through the illustration of a prophet who marries a harlot and continues to seek after her, even after she deserts him. This painful, one-sided love story. And God says, I'm the faithful husband, and I continue to go after and pursue this unfaithful wife, Israel. Why? Because I'm faithful. It's not because of Israel. It's because of my faithfulness. I'm the one who's faithful. Hosea 14, verse 4 says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew of, to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout. His beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. That's the kind of restoration that's promised to Israel because of the covenant faithfulness of God. So what's the application for us? In the same way that God 
committed himself in faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love to Israel and will restore them in the future. God has committed himself in faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love to us in Christ. We, we have these same promises. And in the same way, where it could be said of Israel, you weren't my people, but now you're my people. I didn't have mercy, but now I'll have mercy. It's the same way it could be said about us. You weren't my people, but now you are my people. <laughs> you didn't have mercy, but now you do have mercy. And God commits himself in faithful, covenant-keeping love to us. I will not leave you or desert you. I am committing myself to you, and it doesn't matter what you do because it's about my faithfulness. It's not about you. It's about my faithfulness. We were like the, the adulterers. We were like the wandering harlot. We were like the, the ones who acted shamefully. Hosea chapter 2, verse 8 says, She does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold. You know, she went to these, these other lovers, like, you know, they're the ones who are providing for me. He said, I, she didn't know that it was me who was giving her all that. I'm the one who's providing. We were the adulteresses. And you say, how? It's because of our affection for the world, our aversion to God. We were the adulteresses. James 4, verse 4 says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, you adulteress, making yourself a friend of the world, enemy of God. You were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. You were an enemy of God. You were not his people. But now in Jesus Christ, you have become his people and you have received mercy. And God calls us his people and he calls himself our God. And if you haven't trusted in God, where are you going to go? <laughs> where, where are you gonna go? If, if you don't have God as a, a, a rock to turn to, if you don't have God as the one who keeps faithful love towards you, where do you go? There's nowhere to go. There's no hope. There's no mercy. There's no compassion outside of a relationship with God. And uh, the way that we enter into that relationship with God is through the person of Jesus Christ, the one who commits himself in faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love to us and will commit himself in faithful, loyal, covenant-keeping love to all those who turn from their sins and trust in him. And I pray that if you're here, maybe you're, part of Israel, maybe you're not, but I pray that you would look on the one whom you have pierced, that you would mourn over him as one mourns for an only son, and that you would trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for uh, this time that we've had, and uh, there's so much more that we could have said, but uh, we pray that uh, what's been shared today was helpful. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, to understand your word. Uh, Father, we, we go through these things because uh, we have a, a commitment to understanding uh, your word, uh, what it says, what it means by what it says. Uh, Father, we also have a, a desire to, to see you glorified and honored. And Father, uh, as we look at the faithfulness towards Israel, Father, we are reminded of your faithfulness, that you are the God who's faithful. It's not about Israel. It's not about anything special that they were, anything special that they did. It's about you who promised your love to them, who committed yourself to them, even though they were the least of all nations. And Father, you've committed that same kind of love towards us, that we weren't the many mighty, we weren't the many noble. Father, that we were the outcasts, that we were the adulteresses, that we were the enemies, that we were 
engaged in hostility, alienated from God. Uh, But Father, because of, of your mercy, because of your grace, which we sang about earlier, Father, you've committed yourself to us and we will never be without a God. Father, you you will never leave us. You will never forsake us because of your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.